3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull working somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Clay Merrick. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. On days like today... Doesn't it feel like the market has rallied so hard that it just might be due for a correction? Dow dipping 65 points, S&P declining 0.63%, NASDAQ losing 1.21%. Believe it or not, was actually worse at one point. It was a pretty awful day for almost all stocks, especially the growth stocks. And that's actually somewhat logical as the stock market is wildly overbought. The growth stocks have been red hot. And we're telling club members and members of the CBC Investing Club, you have to be careful here. You can only buy stocks of good companies with good fundamentals that are getting crushed. Good, true growth stocks can be impervious to an even ugly day. When you see Lululemon surging $33 on a tremendous quarter, you know the market's still eager for what is known as secular growth, which is what they have. Secular growth being the kind that doesn't need an economic tailwind, won't be hurt by the Fed, theoretically. At the same time, if you do fear a Fed-mandated slowdown or a recession, as so many do right now, then you have to avoid the cyclicals, the stocks that are hostage to the economy, because it might be too late now that the Fed's poised to slam the brakes on the business cycle. Spot the secular growth stories, the real one. Steer clear of the cyclicals. Sounds easy, right? Not so fast. These days, everybody wants to paint their stock as a secular growth name, especially in times of turmoil, because that means their stock will still go up even if the Fed breaks. But well, wait a second. What executive, what executive would want their business to be branded as a cyclical when so many money managers think we're reaching the end of the cycle and they only want growth? Now, this wasn't always the case, by the way. In the old days, most companies just accepted their lot. You never heard a steel or aluminum maker trying to make the case that they're no longer hostage to the slings and arrows of the economy. A copper miner would never claim to be a secular growth play. An oil company would always accept that its fate was tied to the business cycle. Same goes for the chemical stocks, the paper companies. These were stocks that you bought when the economy was about to take off. And then you hang on until they added too much capacity or demand waned causing price to collapse. Your goal was to get out in some sort of a game of chicken before that occurred. And that's what defines a cyclical stock. Great demand causes a shortage of supply, which then leads to more production, which in turn leads to a supply glut, so the whole edifice collapses under its weight. And that's what so many are worried about. Don't cry for the cyclicals, though. You can make fortunes these things on the way up, provided you know when to jump off. But if you don't jump off at the right time, the losses can be calamitous. So cyclical has become a dirty word for CEOs. They all want that secular halo, and it can be hard to tell whether or not they deserve it. So case in point, let's just dissect one that I interviewed this morning, Micron. Really tough. When I got in this business four decades ago, there were few non-mineral stocks that had as much cyclicality as the stock of Micron. It made pure commodity semiconductors, DRAMs, the most simple of chips, and it competed against a bunch of low-cost producers in Asia. During that period, Micron tended to be either one of the best performers in the S&P 500 or one of the worst, very little middle ground, and the bad times are a lot more frequent than the good. Over time, though, Micron decided to take control of its own destiny, moving into flash memory, then building a far better, more intricate kind of DRAM that you can use in everything from cell phones to PCs, but to data centers and to cars. Yet, no matter what the company does, and that includes reporting an excellent set of numbers last night, it's still tagged as the same old cyclical micron, and it seems to get discovered such on days like today. Now, I think it's wrong. The new Micron is much better than that. It's the low cost and most competitive producer when it comes to quality. Its chips are used in the best growth areas. Nonetheless, I respect what the market is saying. After the stock soared in response to terrific beat and raised quarter, its four-point gain melted away for fear that we'd see the same old commodity semi-cycle. In other words, people didn't care about my view that it might be secular now. They said it's just cyclical. And with Micron and its competitors building too much capacity to meet demand, ultimately causing prices for these chips to collapse. Now, CEO Sanjay Morotra made it easy to turn negative because he said there was weakness in consumer notebooks. I wanted to ignore it because they have so many other parts of their business now. It doesn't matter. The bear seized it and they beat the stock to a pulp. Sure enough, Micron finished the day down 3.5%. So it starts the day as a secular grower and finishes the day as a cyclical bust. We see this dynamic all over the map right now. For years, the oils were the ultimate boom-bust stocks. When demand was off the charts and the oil prices were high, they'd ramp up production, only to sow the seeds of their own demise. New wells would come online, causing prices to collapse. The most recent bust extended from 2014 through a couple of years ago because the industry had zero discipline. Then out of nowhere, a fellow by the name of Rick Moncrief, CEO of Devon Energy, recent guest, by the way, on our investing club program, decided the boom-bust cycle had to stop. Rather than drilling like crazy, he devoted a huge percentage of Devon's earnings and cash flow to you, the shareholder. through a very generous variable dividend. The plan worked because the rest of the industry more or less got on board. Nobody wants to be the first producer to drill like crazy and ruin everything. Now Devon's practically an ATM, spitting out mid to high single-digit yield depending on the price of crude. Monkey's taken a stock from the cyclical garbage pile and put it at the top of the secular cookie jar. Then there's a stock I really like called Deer. Yes, the ag company. And the agricultural cycle has always been boom-bust. There was no way for the world's largest farm equipment to, to, to escape it. Um, it just was always hostage. But now farming's gotten high-tech. You're building autonomous driving tractors, much easier than self-driving cars because there's no traffic in a cornfield. Sure, there's still hostage food prices, but right now, those seem bent on going higher with a drought that could wipe out the Latin American soy crop. And, of course, a war in Ukraine that could take out 13 percent of the world's calories. Of course, for every single company that pulls off this secular transformation, there are also many others that fail. Now, see, I thought RH, the old restoration hardware, had escaped the boom-bust cycle because its wares are so spectacular. But last night, CEO Gary Friedman talked about how RH remains very sensitive to the broader economy and how the war in Ukraine has disturbed the psyche of the customer base, who are now cutting back. I find that shocking. But it caused the stock to go down 50. You don't want that. Then there are the automakers, classics of Google's that have cratered this year because Wall Street worries the Fed rate hikes will make it harder for people to get financing. doesn't help that the semiconductor shortage meant they never got to take full advantage of the boom over the last couple of years. But there's an exception. Tesla. You know why? That's the ultimate secular growth stock. That's why it's such an important one in the market. Finally, let me give you maybe the toughest one, Apple. Now, there's still plenty of analysts who believe Apple's hostage to its own cell phone release schedule, the ultimate cyclical boom and bust nightmare. Me, I think each phone represents an annuity stream with its own lifetime subscription value. Once Apple gets you, you forever have it because it's the best. Now, this stock's been straight up. If it goes down tomorrow, you'll see people blame me. Wait a second. You know my view. I say own it, don't trade it. But if you don't own it yet, it's just been up for day after day after day. It can cool off. Let me give you the bottom line. At this point in the business cycle, just about every company wants to be seen as a secular growth story. Approach them with skepticism. Not too much like they did today in the NASDAQ, but some skepticism. Remember, not every cyclical caterpillar, and that I mean little C, not big C, can turn into a secular butterfly. Kate in Georgia. Kate. Hi,
0: Kramer. How are you? I am
3: good, Kate. How are you doing?
0: I'm great. Kramer, I wanted to um, extend my condolences to your friend who lost his dog. And, um. Yes. You know, I respect everyone's grief timeline, but our shelters here are full, and we adopted a black German shepherd, hands down. I mean, she's the salt of the oh, earth. I just Best
3: love her. My rescue dogs are sleeping in the bed now because my wife got back from Florida. They should wait till I leave the bed. I mean, I love them, but they. Anyway, go ahead, go ahead.
2: <laughs> Um, so my question is regarding
0: AbbVie, high-quality yes. problem. Oh, yeah. I've
2: got huge profits,
3: and
0: I feel like maybe it's time to take them.
3: Oh, well, I've got to tell you, Kate, you know, Jeff Marks and I, you can watch at our ten twenty meeting, we have been going back and forth for the club. He finally convinced me, let's just hang on to the rest because it does still yield three and a half. I think it's, it's going to pull back. But you know what? This is a very good company that was underrated by Wall Street. Let's hold on to some, take profits in others if you have it like we did. Okay, do just what we did in the club. Jeff in Indiana. Jeff. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Thank oh, you for taking my call. Oh, thank you, Jeff. What's up? Hey, my portfolio, I got a good chunk of core Steel, and it uh, it's had a great run this last year from, from uh, 75 up to 157. It's been bounced around 149 or so in this last week. Should I take a little profit to you? Just this? like our previous call, we have a huge gain in Newcore for our investing club. We have sold a lot of it because we don't want to give it back. It is a growth cyclical is what we call it. So take some profits, but not all of it. Now, I know, look, there are things, there are plenty of things we do wrong in the investing club. So you just got two real good ones. I'd like to just talk about, look, there's some things we do wrong, too. Don't make it sound like that these were cherry-picked positive. But we do like to take profits when we have stocks that have some cyclicality or have just skyrocketed because we don't want to give the gains back. In this market, everyone wants to, every single CEO wants wants his stock or her stock to be perceived as a secular growth story, I need you to be skeptical because not every caterpillar can turn into a butterfly. Oh, everybody, tonight, a classic growth stock, paychecks has a, a glimmer of, so, of green on today's tape. So could the payroll processor continue to pay up for investors? Man, I'm checking in with the CEO. Then, after hours, trading has become the Wild West. So should you jump in on the action? Let me give you some warnings. And then I've got the most exciting company in the market, which is And I want you to be careful because it's such an exciting story, but it's only a $5 stock. Stay with Kramer.
1: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag mad tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call
3: Lately, we've been glued to every piece of big picture macroeconomic data because everyone wants to figure out how aggressive the Federal Reserve will have to be and how bad the brakes are going to be slammed on. But in the end, the most important data point is the Labor Department's nonfarm payrolls report. That's Friday. And we just got a pretty positive readout on the employment front this morning. I'm talking about the one from Paychex, the payroll processor for small, medium-sized businesses that also provides all sorts of outsourced human capital management services. More on that in a moment. This morning, Paychex reported a clean beat and raised quarter. Initially, the stock got dinged because it had already run up into the quarter. But as the conference calls went on, the bulls cannot be denied. You often see this kind of absurd action in early morning or afternoon hours on that later. Olderly, the stock finished up 3% today, which I think was right. But unfortunately, strong employment is not what we want to see right now because it means the Fed needs to be more aggressive. Good news for paychecks, though. They benefit from rate hikes as they collect interest on, on your money while they wait for your cash to, to check but your checks to cash. But also, they just do quite well when it comes to uh, more companies being created. So let's check in with Marty Musi, the bankable chairman and CEO of Paychex. get a better read on the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Musi, welcome back to Mad Money.
5: Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it being here.
3: Marty, I saw a plethora of greatness from your quarter. New businesses, more employees at the businesses, and more work for paychecks at each company. Is it just all coming together, the things that you've worked on for years since we've been talking
5: It really is, Jim. You know, third consecutive quarter of double digit revenue and earnings growth. We're very excited about it. Uh, Great macro environment, frankly, and our product development over the last few years has really come together to help people to help these businesses grow their businesses and uh, and continue to grow.
3: Why isn't uh, the rising cost of so much hurting companies to the point where they have to close? Why are you seeing so many companies being able to sustain these levels of inflation?
5: Well, Jim, I think, one, there's plenty of demand there, right? Uh, You know, there's plenty of demand for what they're selling. Also, the government subsidies have certainly helped out. You know, we talked about our employee retention tax credit service that we've been helping our clients with. On average, our clients have gotten $180,000 from the government subsidy of employee retention tax credit. That's helped sustain their business.
3: Now, also, at the same time, I believe state assembly after state assembly, particularly in some of what I would regard as, say, the more liberal states, have been developing legislation that has really helped the employee. Nothing wrong with that. I've been an employee all my life. But it must be very difficult for smaller and medium sized businesses to know how to handle the new laws without paychecks.
5: Well, it really is. You know, we're very proud of the fact we have over 200 compliance specialists that just watch and monitor every federal, state, and local bill. And the changes that are there, we have an IT team that can put those changes in place quickly. Just like when the Paycheck Protection Program came out, we were there the next day ready to help them get loans. And we got over $70 billion, helped our clients get over $70 billion in loans, of which over 95% now are already forgiven.
3: Well, that's amazing. That was, that was some program kept a lot of companies alive. Now, uh, a lot of companies are faced with people, uh, employees who are just quitting. And they call it the Great Resignation. The they can call whatever they want, but the fact is, you need the great retention. And Paychex is working to retain. What are you doing to retain the right people?
5: You know, Bill. Uh, you know, it's really funny, Jim. It's what we're able to do is use our data to help our clients and the products we're introducing right from the beginning. How do we hire and attract and retain people? Our our clients. You know, doing it all digitally, doing it all online, paperless. We have a a. Uh, you know, we're in with uh, with LinkedIn, with you know, and trying to help them, you know, bring their clients on board. We're doing it all paperlessly. Then we have a multitude of products that are going to help them from giving them compensation to showing what their, their what the highest retention is. You know, we've got a lot of products that are going to really help them keep and retain and actually help the career building of their employees.
3: Well, it works. It's definitely working for you guys. I do not and have not talked enough about your professional employer organization group and insurance solutions. Okay. I know, as uh, one of my colleagues was saying, Jim, you got to talk about it. It may not sound interesting, but, boy, it's up 20. Uh, it, what, it's, it, it was up more than 21 percent, and it's obviously yeah. doing incredibly well. well. Maybe you can give us a little insight because too many people talk about what you're making on the float and not nearly enough people talk about the, PE, the PEO business.
5: Yeah, the PEO basically is a co-employer relationship with paychecks, and so you can benefit from our benefit plans. The benefit plans can be shared among companies, and smaller companies don't always have the benefit plans or the insurance, the health insurance that their, their, their employees want, and that attracts and retains employees. So it's really important. We're seeing great growth there. One, we had great sales uh, once again in the quarter on the PEO business. We saw the growth in worksite employees at our clients, and we saw better health insurance attachment because these businesses need to provide health insurance to, to retain employees, even if they're a smaller business. But with a PEO, they can benefit from our employee it, plans.
3: As part of the health insurance, do you uh, help people say, do you monitor COVID? Looks like COVID's having a bit of an uptick here. Do you give them a sense about that, too?
5: Uh, you do get a sense of that, but it's really and we also have a product that, you know, we're able to now put a, a document management and through our document management system, that the vaccinations can be uploaded as well. So we're assisting in that. And even when there's an uptick right now, it doesn't seem to be impacting small and mid-sized businesses. Because, as you know, I think it's turning out to be more flu-like, and it's not the hospitalizations and the time off that we were seeing before.
3: Yeah, because what I'm hoping is is that it, the next time around, companies like you can advise other companies to say, look, here's the protocol. You ought to immediately have testing. You ought to have someone who does give shots. You ought to have someone that recognizes that here's the percentages of the ages over 50. Because I found everything was too catch-as-catch cam from the federal government. I trust paychecks more than I trust the feds.
5: Yeah, I think, Jim, you know, that's part of the benefit of the PEO as well, or our ASO where we have over 600 HR professionals out to help you. We can give you kind of best practice. Even if you're a small business and you don't have access, you can see best practice, and we can help you get the best practice in place for your employees. And you can act like a large business, even though you may not have the resources that they do.
3: And last question. It's obvious. I know employment numbers probably going to be strong on Friday, but uh, parts of the country that are just still uh, red hot?
5: Yeah, there is. I mean, the South and the Southwest are still the strongest we saw that in our small business index released this week. You know that's where the people are too. Right. So uh, there's and they're seeing big wage increases, Jim. Right, close to five percent on an annual basis. Oof. Just last May in twenty one, it was two point seven. Now it's four point eight. Uh, annual wage increase overall. So, well, and it's the millennials getting the biggest one, closer to eight uh, percent.
3: Are they lucky? Well, anyway, maybe they deserve it. there <laughs> labor's had a tough time over multiple years. Now it's their time. Marty Musi, Chairman and CEO of Paychex. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sir. Always good to see you. Okay. Thanks, nice, Jim. Everybody's back
1: for the break. Coming up, beware what happens in the dark. Kramer is working on his night moves. A case study and after-hours trading, next.
2: The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, unlock the energy and order yours at acura.com
0: take your business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card you can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit u.s restaurants and gas stations that's the powerful backing of american express Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
3: Last night, the stock market closed its schedule at 4 p.m. Then almost immediately after hours, trading turned into the wild, wild west. Now, I always tell you to avoid after-hours trading because it has a tendency to get psychotically unpredictable. We had some high-profile companies reporting last night, three in particular that I was watching like a bald eagle, Micron, Lulu, and RH, the artist formerly known as Restoration Hardware. In each name, the traders moved from headline to headline like they were having wild, unmedicated mood swings in response to every new morsel of information, without even 100 milligrams of lithium to keep them on even keel. Now, we just learned yesterday that Robinhood is extending its trading hours. We have more than 20 million uh, people who have money there. So those people will be able to trade from 7 a.m. to 8 8 p.m. 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Come on, man. I'm begging you not to get sucked in, especially when when earnings are on the table. So tonight, I want to give you a little case study on after hours trading based on just one single night's activity, one night's worth. And it shows you why it can be a mugs game to be in those after hours or before hours, even though I know younger people seem to be addicted to doing this. So let's start first. I'll take them in ascending order of insanity, frankly. We'll start with Micron, the commodity semiconductor play that's focused on storage and memory chips. This one's important because Micron's widely perceived as a bellwether for the entire semiconductor industry. Its stock tends to be a real roller coaster, soaring when chip supplies are tight, and then collapsing at the first sign that demand is waning. During the first few months of the market-wide meltdown, micron held up pretty good, okay, Um, because the chip shortages gave them pricing power. But then Russia invaded Ukraine, so we started worrying about new supply constraints, and the market turned out just turned against all, pretty much every single tech stock. The stock plunged from the mid-'90s in February, so you can see it go down, okay, Uh, all the way to the high 60s at the lows of a couple weeks ago. Then micron bottomed alongside the Nasdaq, and last night's close was back to 82 so what did happen after the market closed, when the results came out? OK, when the Micron results were fir- first hit the wire, it was immediately clear that it was a good quarter. All right. A substantial so- sales and earnings beat. Guidance was even better. Their full year forecast was much higher than what the analysts were looking for. In response, the stock caught fire in after-hours trading and jumped to $85, up from $82, and, and changed it within minutes. OK, within minutes. So you can see how that happened. But that's where it peaked because buyers committed one of the two classic blunders, never start a land more in Asia and never buy a stock on good earnings before you listen to the conference call. And all these buyers up here didn't get to hear what we heard on the conference call, which was that there was some hair on the quarter. Management talked about how COVID's, uh, China's COVID lockdowns could threaten the global electronics supply chain. They warned that Russia's invasion of Ukraine and subsequent sanctions could crimp supplies of various gases that chipmakers needed for manufacturing. Micron says that they're going to increase their costs. Uh, the, 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 you know, there, there were things that were wrong in the call that would have made it so you wouldn't have bought right here and you wouldn't have bought up there. All right. Now, it turns out the sell in February and March reflected some pretty legitimate concerns. In response, Micron gave back all of its after-hour gains uh, and, get this, the stock actually finished down more than 3%, which I think is, frankly, a profound overreaction. But those who bought first are now rethinking their purpose in life. This, no reason. No reason. Listen to the call. This is after-hours trading that is bad, but wait to see the next two. Ultimately, I think that by the way, the Micron quarter was was not bad, and I think that if you buy it down here, it'll be good. They got sustainable demand from the data center to five G to artificial intelligence to electric vehicles. I like Micron down below eighty, but if you tried to chase the stock in after hours trading at eighty six, you ended up paying much more than you needed to, and that's pretty much these things were. I saw ticks at eighty six, it's eighty five and a half, eighty five and a half, and then the stock went down a lot. It, you you could have flipped it maybe at the opening for a little less, but then after that was all bad. Now, look at this one, Lululemon. Right, this great growth stock peaked at 485 in November for plummeting to 278 at its lows a couple of weeks ago. This was during, remember, this is when the Fed decided didn't like these high growth stocks. Didn't, well, Fed decided inflation was too hard, they would slam on the brakes. And this is that what you're seeing there is this is what happens when the Fed gets tough and inflation heats up. Now, some of that's market-wide sell-off. Some of it's because Lulu seen, was seen as a COVID winner, with the pandemic waning, money managers are worried that demand for casual clothes will wane too. Still, the stock, the stock shook off those worries and recovered to 344 at yesterday's close. Then Lulu reported after the close, and while their sales were basically in line, they delivered a 10 cent earnings beat off a 327 basis and rolled out a billion dollar buyback. More importantly, management gave you tremendous forecasts for both the current quarter and the full year, and that's why the stock ended up soaring nearly 10% today in a terrible market. But now look at the after hours action because something really went wrong last night. There was a flash crash. This is an actual flash crash. Uh, Look at this thing. And then it went up. What happens if you bought it right then with a market order? What happened to cause a flash crash? All right. First, there was some confusion about Lulu's total comparable sales and its comparable store sales. The former includes a digital business. The latter is just same store sales for the physical locations. We saw all different estimates floating around for these metrics. I think the confusion may have scared some people away and caused others to panic Okay, because the numbers weren't right. They were not apples to apples. The headlines were wrong. Second, when you line up the timing, it sure looks like Lulu stock briefly collapsed because of a line in the conference call where management said the persistent delays in ocean freight are causing them to lean more heavily into air freight. Now maybe traders had some PTSD from Gap, which missed its holiday quarter due to high air freight costs. Either way, people freaked out again. That was part of the flash crash. But 20 minutes later, Lulu explained that these costs were already baked into the excellent forecast, and so you were pretty good. But if you sold the stock down at 345 last night, you're kicking yourself today. Uh, that's that's it. Back at the at 370. Once again, I'm begging you, don't make a move until you heard the whole call. So you had conference. You had same store sales numbers that were not apples to apples. OK. And then you also had a line about air freight. And that's what caused this and this. And believe me, a lot of you might have put a market order in. OK, a market order in to sell the stock here and you got this price. Can you imagine? Imagine how bad that is. All right, the third example is RH. This was ultimately last night's biggest disappointment. But if you're watching the after-hours action, you would have had no idea whether the quarter was good or bad. The actual results were mixed. RH same-store sales came in at 9.7%, and it was looking for 12.6%. And their sales were weaker than expected. But they still delivered a modest earnings beat. Still, that was enough to make the stock pop initially, because RH had already lost nearly half of its value since the, the stock peaked last summer. Okay? Now, get this. Unfortunately, those early buyers, the people who paid up here... Well, they made a mistake. ROH's guidance was mixed. You got that after. But overall, less encouraging than the results. And so then the, the guidance brings it down here. They had an OK forecast for the current quarter, a couple of some not so hot full year numbers, slowing sales growth, weaker operating margins. And in response, the stock simply gave it gave back everything. But get this. ROH pirouetted. Why? Because the company announced a three for one stock split. So suddenly everybody's crazy about it. Remember how much uh, you made if you bought Tesla on the stock split? But stock splits create no value. This is pure financial alchemy. But a lower dollar price per share tends to entice individual investors. As much as I like stock splits, uh, none of this stuff matters if the underlying business is struggling. It turns out it's R.H. is. Now, if you waited for R.H.'s conference call, you learned about the struggle. During the Q&A, CEO Gary Friedman repeatedly sounded the alarm about inflation, saying the Federal Reserve has no idea how bad things have gotten. He said supply chains haven't gotten better at all. He said R.H.'s business slowed significantly when Russia invaded Ukraine and planned store launches were being delayed. At one point, Friedman truly made me feel like people weren't buying goods of late over sheer gloom in Ukraine and maybe sheer pandemonium in the bond market. Now, I'm not quite sure what point he was trying to make, but it definitely was not what shareholders wanted to hear. So anybody who bought up here off the stock split, Oh, my. You were just crushed. Yeah. And the stock ultimately closed down 15 percent, 334. So you got excited about the stock split here. You got excited about what looked like an upside surprise here. And you just got crushed. The bottom line. Oh, it's great that Robinhood wants to extend its trading hours. But keep in mind that you're playing with fire here. One mistake in after-hours trading will wipe you out much faster than a mistake during regular hours when everyone has the same information, there are more bids and offers, and the playing field is more or less even. Let's speak to Ifti in Florida. Ifti.
2: Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. You know, I watch your show every night.
3: Oh, thank you very much. Thank
6: you.
2: Yeah, Basically, I wanted to ask your opinion about uh, Home Depot. Well,
6: what do you think of that long and short?
3: Well, Home Depot... Uh, there are a lot of people who follow me on Twitter who are convinced that I've got to say that home, just throw in the talent Home Depot. I've liked Lowe's more than Home Depot. Um, am I crazy about the stock of Home Depot? Look, in, when the time of rising rates, people don't want to buy anything related to housing. So I understand the client Home Depot and Home Depot did not have as good a quarter as Lowe's. So there it is. straight I don't know what else to say. It didn't have as good a quarter. If you're involved in after-hours trading, I'm telling you, you're playing with fire. You would have lost a fortune here. One mistake will wipe you out much faster than a mistake during regular hours because you have these giant swings that you can't do anything with if you're using market orders. Now, there's much more more uh, mad money ahead, including my exclusive with the head of Tellurian. With renewable energy not quite ready for prime time, what can the U.S. do to help European countries that depend on Russian natural gas? I've got the exclusive. And choosing in the doghouse after earnings, I'm revealing what went wrong and what the future holds for the online pet retailer. And then, of course, lawyer calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. We don't know how the Russian invasion of Ukraine will ultimately play out. But I'm pretty confident that Russia's psychotic aggression has totally transformed European energy policy. Many EU countries are hostage to Russian oil and gas supplies, especially Germany, thanks to the misguided leadership of former Chancellor Merkel. The Germans are already girding themselves for shortages. They don't want to have to pay for Russian gas in rubles. Now that Europe needs a new energy supply, our government wants to help them fill the void. The White House and the European Commission just announced a joint task force to supply them with more natural gas. Oh, that's not going to be easy. To Transport the stuff costs a lot of money. You need to freeze it in the liquid. That requires enormous expensive liquefied natural gas terminals, which brings me to Sharif Suki. He's the pioneer practically created this entire industry, first with Cheniere Energy, and now he's doing it again with Tellurian, which just began construction on its first LNG terminal in Louisiana. How big is this story? Look, Tellurian's stock is up nearly 40% in just the last 12 days, including another 6% today. So let's take a close look with Sharif Suki, the co-founder and executive chairman of Tellurian, who understands this business better than anybody. Mr. Suki, welcome back to Make Money.
6: Thank you very much, Sam.
3: Well, first, I want really to thank you. It is great that you're on. I want to congratulate you because the Driftwood LNG products, a lot of people thought would never come to fruition. I look at it now, I look at your release, and I think, is there any way you can double or triple the size of this project?
6: I think eventually we're going to get to 27 million tons, which is roughly three BCF a day. And that's about as much as we can do uh, on that particular site. Um, I am very encouraged by the fact that there is a number of other projects in the U.S. that are permitted and are waiting for the right business model to go forward. So uh, if we put our minds to it, we in the U.S. can have the world with about 120 million tons in addition to what is already under construction. So we can make a huge difference in terms of world gas supply. 120 uh, million tons? if we want to do it?
3: You're talking about the possibility of your company alone providing a substantial amount of the LNG that the EU needs. Uh,
6: that, that is not a question, Jim. We are going to do it. We started construction. The first LNG will be on the water in early 2026. And we we'll continue to develop the project because uh, the fundamentals and the economics dictate it. It is such a... An arbitrage between American gas at 4 or $5 and world gas over $20. The vicinity pays for itself in a year and a half. Wow.
3: Well, Sharif, at one point people told me, you know, I love you. I know you love the guy because uh, he got engineer at eight, but he's not going to be able to get the financing for this big project. To me, uh, if I were any European company, if I were any European government, I'd be trying to
6: guarantee your debt. That is definitely something that they should think about. However, Jim, we don't need them. We are uh, in the process of getting our debt and our equity put together. We'll do that in the next few weeks or months. And uh, that's why we're so confident that we started construction. So I, I, governments normally move slowly even in a state of emergency. Uh, we, by the time they figured out how to do this, we would have we would be well on the way to construct this facility.
3: Uh, you once told me that there is enough natural gas to take care of uh, the Asian needs and the European needs. Obviously, we didn't expect what happened in Europe. But it does seem to me that if that the president may actually be onto to something in thinking that America can supply enough LNG to the EU.
6: I think um, we have enough gas to take care of the U.S. needs for 100 years. So it's not very difficult for us to share this with the rest of the world. The question is, do we need to build the the infrastructure? It is not a short thing. It is uh, the 120 million tons that is already permitted is going to require 120 to 150 billion dollars worth of investments. So um, we need to get seriously
1: behind it.
3: Well, but when I hear that, I think in this country, we don't have enough workers. We don't have enough. Even Bechtel, which is a great company, they can't find all the people that need, that need to, to build these things.
6: You are absolutely right. That, that's gonna be one of the major challenges. So you're gonna to have to have capital and people. We are already seeing some constraints uh, in the ways that we are drilling today. It is taking longer than it did a year ago. Uh, there are uh, bottlenecks everywhere. The good news, uh, Jim, is that in the agreement with Europe, uh, the current administration has finally agreed to facilitate the permitting process and the execution uh, in terms of how you go to FERC and the other agencies and make things happen in a in a hurry. And we've already seen some signs of this uh, in our in everyday life. So. That that is very important, but we're going to have uh, labor challenges, but we we'll deal with them. Uh, yeah. This well, is a very prosperous country.
3: Well, let me ask you because I know you know you're international. Uh, you go all over the world and you have tremendous contacts. Will uh, is Russia uh, perhaps overplaying its hand in its belief that it has total leverage over the EU, given what our hundred-year supply here? I I, I just
6: can't fathom what was going in this person's mind. He made so many mistakes, including the leverage that he thought he had over Europe, the facility with which he thought he was going to be able to bully the Ukraine into doing what he wanted. He was wrong on everything. The strength of his own army, I mean, the number of mistakes he made is mind-blowing. Um, this is a person that actually snatched uh, defeat after the Joseph victory. He was on his way to become one of the largest economies in Europe and probably in the world because of the richness of his resources. And instead of that, he's taken his country back to the Dark Ages. So...
3: Is it possible? I mean, you know, there was a very good piece in The New York Times that he's saying that he does have still some master plan that we haven't thought of where he could still level Kyiv, that he's still got something going that will make it so that we're all hostage to him. I mean, I I don't see it anymore, but maybe that's he's got some master plan that's not clear.
6: I mean, of course, he can be destructive, uh, but it's not going to improve his situation. That's going to make things only worse.
3: Well, look, you know more than most of the people, well, you know more than anybody I've ever talked about. He, he did overplay his hand, I think. There's to, we, ha, we can actually help the EU tremendously. And by the way, sir, it was all you're doing because nobody else had the vision for you. No one else had the vision except for you to do this. So thank you for what you've done.
6: Thank you, Jim.
3: All right. That's Sharif Suki, Tellurian chairman and co-founder. You know, I like the stock, but be careful. It is a small one, only $5.44. No reason to take it up big tomorrow. May have money back after the break.
1: Whatever question you have. Should I buy, sell, or hold? Would you recommend sitting on the sidelines? Kramer's got the answer. Your business is on fire, and I think you just got to hold it. The lightning round is coming up next.
2: It is time for the light round.
3: And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Keep that. I'm going to over here Joseph in California. Joseph. Booyah,
2: Jim. First time long. Time. First oh, things fantastic. Things. What's going on? I don't know where I would be without you. Thank you for everything that's doing. Thank My you. My stock is Olin. My stock is Olin. It's a material a chemical company with pricing power that looks undervalued, has good earnings, revenue growth, and a
3: low PE. It is, it is all of- that. It is all that. But the PE is attractive and low because I think the pricing is not going to hold up. I want you to be careful with that one. Let's go to, and thank you for being a member of the Investment Club. So some people outside the exchange, they want to join. Fantastic. Rich in
2: Ohio. Rich. Hi, Jamie. Hey, hey, I'm a first-time caller. I just want to thank you for all your advice. Aw, uh, thank you. I bought Hertz. I bought Hertz uh, prior to bankruptcy. Since it's cut out of bankruptcy, the stock's up about 50%. And they also issued be a lot of warrants, which have actually doubled. I just wanted to get your advice on where I should go, either own
3: the stock. Let it or run. Or Steve Schur in town. Steve sure is the CEO. He used to be the CFO of, of uh, Goldman Sachs, one of the smartest guys I have ever met. Be long hurts. Let's go to Brad North Dakota. Brad. Thank you for taking my call, sir. Of course. I, I bought CF Holdings last July. Is it time for me to ring the register? On half of it, yes. Fertilizer plays tend to be very volatile. Take out half, play with the rest. House is money. Daniel in Florida. Daniel. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Long-time listener here. been watching your show since I was 18. really appreciate everything you do. Of course.
2: Thank you. So I want to get your opinion. With their recent $2.5 billion acquisition of footwear company Hey Dude, trading 56% off its highs, eight times forward
3: earnings, is Crocs a buy? Um, no, because I thought they paid too much for that, and it was at the wrong point in the cycle. They should have waited. They could have got it much cheaper. I'm going to say avoid. Let's go to John in North Carolina. John. Who you are, Jim? How are you doing? I am doing well. How about you? I'm
1: alright. My question
3: is buy sell or hold canopy growth. CGC. Canopy Growth is too late to sell. I think David Klein should come on, talk about the possibilities of what happens if they get to, uh, get through Congress. It's too slow too low to sell in seven. Roman in New York Roman.
2: Roman and Yonkers, New York. How are you? All right. Booyah, what's going on? Booyah. Booyah. I got a question about, uh, I've been following the uh, Chinese tech stocks. And okay. I noticed they've been beating down 75%, the ones on the NASDAQ, Golden, Dragon Index. And the one I was watching in particular was JD.com. I noticed a couple of weeks ago it was like $42 and change. It's up to like well, $61 and did have that one period where the you know,
3: China government slammed them in and they put them back up. My take is this. I don't want you there. Okay? Too risky. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round.
1: The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, is this stock nothing but a hound dog? Why, it may be time to shed Chewy from your watch list. Next. Tomorrow. Kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE.
3: When Disney does my plan, my affinity plan, this stock will fly.
5: <laughs> it all began right here. Right here. It it there's
3: no know, right It doesn't have to be invented by them.
1: It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
3: Alas, poor Chewy. It's been a rough past year for this online pet store play, and it only got worse today. Stock plunging another 17% on an ugly, ugly quarter. Now, let me say, let me say from the start, I'm very grateful for Chewy. We've got beautiful portraits of our now deceased dogs, Bug and NVIDIA, right on our mantle, courtesy of Chewy. And there's a funny picture of Marley in there, too. We love their dog toys also. I mean, although the dogs ripped the bob. What I, I, I don't love is the quarter they reported last night. The stock took it right on the kisser today, and i got to say it had it coming. Chewy's spending more to get new customers. Some older cohort customers aren't renewing their subscriptions at the same pace. And worst of all, they are still losing money. I mean, gobs of money with ruinous gross margins that they must reverse pronto. Something's clearly wrong when a company that got its start in 2011, founded in part by GameStop guru Ryan Cohen, is still losing money over a decade later. With declining gross margins, increased ad spending and rising competition, I don't see how the story ends well for Chewy shareholders. There were analysts hinting that this company could actually run out of money if it had to keep spending like this, for heaven's sake. They have a decent balance sheet, though. Um, Now, the analysts did not say that Chewy needs to be put down. But considering the company's lost hundreds of millions of dollars over the years, free cash flow turned negative again last quarter. That's no longer an insane position. Ever since the Fed declared war on inflation in November, what have I told you and members of the investing club? That companies that make things and do stuff for a profit are the ones we want to own. And even better, if they return some of those profits to shareholders, that's our mantra for the CBC Investing Club. It should be your mantra. Arguably, Chewy is the exact opposite of what we're looking for. It sells other people's products and loses money in the process with no hope of profitability in the horizon, let alone dividends or buybacks. Now, I often get calls about companies with similar trajectories to Chewy, especially on Daily Today. Before inflation really took hold, Wall Street loved these unprofitable companies that would spend fortunes trying to dominate a particular space. Now, though, the market has changed, and there's zero patience for those kinds of stories, as we saw in the NASDAQ this whole session. On top of that, I think Chewy might be in the crosshairs of a new dynamic that I've been seeing ever since COVID peaked here in the U.S. These days, people don't want to order something online if they can easily buy it in person. Coming out of the pandemic, we crave not just convenience, but community. Yes, Chewy is the most convenient way to buy heavy bags of dog food. But if you, like many people, you're craving human interaction, then you're more likely to show up in person at, say, a Petco, symbol woof. Plus, Petco can offer something that Chewy can never offer, veterinary service. I like that Chewy partnered with Trupanion to offer pet insurance, because that's really expensive. But there's nothing like going to the store and meeting the vet while you get whatever else you need for your pets, including more pets. Petco does grooming and the arduous dog baths, too. Now, I know Chewy is smart management. I think they can figure something out, given the demand for all things pet-related has soared since the pandemic. But if they aren't turning a profit yet after all these years— I find it impossible to recommend their stock in this environment. If you want to play the humanization of pets, I'd much rather buy the stock of Petco, which has the added advantage of making a lot of money. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise trying to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.